You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. We are in Hebrews chapter 10, and we are sort of turning the page in a way from a a robust discussion, or some of you might say a very long-winded discussion uh, about the supremacy of Christ and, and the better covenant that he has brought, a new covenant brought through the work in the person of Jesus. And so today we turn towards how we live as the people of God in that covenant secured by the work of the Son. And so we are moving from doctrine uh, into duty, or from creed into conduct, from thought into action. And what I have learned in my time at being a pastor is uh, that people are much more receptive of messages that renew motivation through scripture that is made applicable and practical in their lives to do the work of faith more more than we are at messages that center around better doctrine and theology or knowledge of God and who we are. Uh, We like it when people tell us what to do. Like we like being told what to do. Because it's tangible, something concrete, we can attempt it. But we're not as keen on the work that comes from changing our beliefs and thoughts behind those actions. Because those realities are intangible. They're not physical. And they don't often (laughs) come quickly. They take time. And they also take one another. We need each other to change our beliefs and our thoughts. And so what I appreciated about the the writer of the letter of Hebrews is this little caveat, this little teaching here from 19 to 25, as he transitions from doctrine to duty, that serves as a warning in some ways towards having the right kind of confidence, having the right sort of motivation in our relationship with God and one another. He is trying to pull us away from the tangible realities, which are quite honestly easier for us tangible realities that that center around our abilities and our knowledge and our efforts, and he's driving us towards an identity that is intangible, that is unchangeable, that is secured in Christ in the heavenly realms. And I really appreciate his efforts to bring us into the right mindset. So let's take a a few moments here to pray, and then we'll jump into our scripture. Father, we come before you and confess uh, that we need you. Uh, Lord, there are ways that we have we've not honored you in our life this week. We've not honored you in our relationships, and we've not glorified your name. Um, and so, Lord, forgive us our sins. And, Lord, teach us through your holy word uh, what is right and good and edifying in our life. Make your words come alive in us today through the Spirit of God. Bring conviction and gladness where is appropriate, Lord. Move us today through your word. We love you, and we pray this in the beautiful and powerful name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Chapter 10, starting in verse 19, we'll go to 22 here. 
He starts out with this word, therefore. And we've talked about anytime we hear the word therefore, he's making a transition. And that transition, uh, what he's going to say after this word, therefore, is true only because of what he has said before the therefore. He says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the heavenly places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he had opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled, hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And so here in 1019, he, he says that therefore, he says we should have confidence and he reiterates the reason why we have confidence. We have confidence because of who Jesus is and what he has done. We have confidence in Jesus to enter into the holy places and so what does he mean by that? What does he mean by entering into the holy places? So we remember that Jesus and his sacrifice was a sufficient and full payment for all the sins of humanity. That through Christ, we are reunited with the Father in peace, redeemed to live with God, to live out our truest and most fundamental design to love and enjoy God with all of our lives, to worship him with all that we have. Through Christ, we have relationship with God. A new covenant through which we draw near. And the author says that this covenant is new and it's living. It's a living way that he, Christ, has opened up for us. In our study of the Old, Test the Old Testament and the Old Covenant, we learned that the Old Covenant provided very limited access for God's people to have direct access to him. If we can remember back to the tabernacle, we remember that once a year, the high priest entered a room called the Holies of Holies. The Holy of Holies was the place that God's presence dwelled in a special way on the earth. And only once a year did one person go into that room to have direct access to God. So you and I, Joe Schmo, did not have direct access to God. Never. It had limited access, but the old covenant also had limited atonement. We remember that the sins that were covered in the old covenant sacrifices were only sins of unintentional by nature. They were sins of ignorance. There were no sacrifices for the sins of high hand or willful premeditated sins of God's people. There were no sacrifices. So there's limited access. There's limited atonement. But when the flesh of Christ was torn on the, the cross, what happened in the tabernacle was the, the veil that separated the, the most holy place from the holy of holies was ripped. And we read about this through the gospel writer named Matthew in chapter 27. He says, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom, and the earth shook, 
and the rocks were split. Something significant happened. Something significant happened in that moment. And what happened? It means that the death of Christ has removed the wall of hostility that separates God from man. No longer does God want to meet with his people through the high priest in the tabernacle, but God is, we are ushered into the presence of God by the Son. We come into relationship with God through Jesus because Christ provides us unlimited access through unlimited atonement. Jesus was a once and forever sacrifice for the sins of humanity. And so it is through faith in Christ that we can know and enjoy the Father that we can know and love him. It is through Jesus that God dwells with us. We of faith have become the house of God. We are the meeting place. Those of us of faith become the very tabernacle in which God dwells on earth, and that only comes through Jesus. Our relationship with the Father only through Jesus, and God's fa- the Father's relationship with us through Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit that he can dwell and live with us on the earth. And this new covenant is a living way, as it says. It's not dead. It's a living way because Christ lives forever in the presence of God. And what is he doing there? He is always living to pray for us, to intercede for us, to draw those of faith towards the Father. There is a sense in which Christ's atoning work was done on the cross, but his work as our redeemer and our high priest is ongoing without ceasing, never stopping, living always for us. And our author says that this, friends, is what you are to base your confidence in. This is what you base your confidence in. Christ's past and ongoing work is the basis of your confidence. Now, That is a challenging statement for us, and I'll get to that. But it is a very challenging statement for the people within this early church because it would have required a very drastic shift in where they had their confidence in. The old covenant was a very tangible, physical covenant. You could see it. You could touch it. It was in your presence. There would be a confidence that you would find in in works of the law, in ritual and in sacrifices, you could go to the temple and you could physically give an offering to God. And, and you could leave there with some level of confidence that what well, I did something for God. You could see the priesthood in the courtyard doing their busy work. And you would say, ah, I can see the pre- they're working on my behalf as God's people. You could see them and you could drop a sacrifice off at the temple. You could drop it off, and you would have some level of confidence knowing that your sin was atoned for by that sacrifice. And so there's a level in which this is very tangible. There's something gratifying in that, isn't there? There's something confident building in thinking that I've done something in this equation. There's something that I've controlled, something that I can point to and say, look look what I did. One of the challenges of being in ministry and in any profession that revolves around relationships is that the work is ongoing. Like there's never like a place where you you say, ah, I did something and I feel gratified. Like there's always new scenarios, new challenges that come our way in relationships. And so that is why one of my loves is to like do 
projects around my house because I, I can check the list, right? I can do something and I can get done with it. And I can look at it and say, ah, I've done something here. I've actually done something. And that is our desire, isn't it? That we like to feel accomplished by the things that we do. But what the writer is saying here is that is not the basis of your confidence anymore. Your confidence comes from resting and trusting in the character and the work of another person, Jesus Christ. Not of yourself, another person. Now, put yourself, if you could, in the shoes of a first century believer in Rome in this time. The world around you would be antagonistic towards your belief and who you are. You would not be accepted within the mainstream culture. You would have known people who you loved and fellowship with you, with you that have rejected you and have walked away from the faith. You would have known those struggles. And I don't think it's much to say that I don't think that for some of us, we are too dissimilar to what they are feeling in that day. A little outcast, a little push to the friends that fringes. We, we, we may have had people that we walk with for years in fellowship with shared belief that have now walked away from us and walked away from the faith. And so the author says, in the midst of all of that, in the face of all of that, all the hardships and all of the struggles, to not have confidence in yourself, but have confidence in Jesus, in a person that you've never met, in a work that you've never seen. None of the people in this church would have been eyewitnesses to Jesus. None of them would have seen the work of Jesus. They all would have come to faith through the Spirit and through secondhand knowledge like you and I. And do you see the weight of what our author is asking his people for in Hebrews 10? Like to turn away from all the people that you knew. Turn away from all the things that you've done, all of your actions that you once had confidence in, including yourself, and turn to Christ by faith. That is an extraordinary ask, isn't it? That's extraordinary ask. But this is the ask that every believer in Christ must face in our life. Am I willing to surrender all that I am, all that I've done, all that I know because of who Jesus is and what he's done? The people of God must come to a place of surrender where we glorify and honor God above ourselves. And so there is a sense in which our author is saying that what God wants to do is he's not necessarily concerned about giving us some action or ability to change our circumstances and all our externals. But what God wants to do is change the internal. He wants to change our heart so that we see the world and its people differently. We remember that God does not delight in offerings and sacrifices. He doesn't delight in any of those things. He delights in the one who surrenders to do the will of God in flesh on earth. And so the writer goes on to say here, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He says, let us draw near 
not on the basis of our confidence that we've done something in our abilities or our talents or our uniqueness, but confidence that we have in the blood of Christ that has paved the way, our forerunner in salvation. It is in him that we draw near to God. And what do we draw near to God with? With a true heart, it says. With a true heart. With a genuine and sincere heart towards God, to know and to love him. A heart that has the right motivations. There's no ulterior motivations to our life. A heart that comes to God for God himself. Now, it's easy to look at this old covenant and all of these practices and all of these rituals and all the rules of worship and all the rules of sacrifice and see the enormous amount of legalism that existed in this. Legalism being that you got to do this and you got to do this and if you don't do that and if you don't do this, many of you probably had a, a background of a very legalistic faith that saw God as this sort of cosmic dictator. He's staring down from heaven you, you made you see Christianity as a bunch of rules uh, that said, do this and, and don't do that. Or, or, and if you do that, then God's going to smite you. He's just going to punish you. And so you walk the line because you saw God as angry. And we came to God, not because we saw his worth and his value, not because we were humble and contrite in our need, but out of fear for our own lives for torture and hell and escaping it. Now, there is nothing wrong with fearing the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. But it's not the motive of a true heart that draws near the Father. And so today, we, most of us probably in this room, reject this sort of legalism because it's whether we realize it or not, that fear is still self-absorbed. We don't see God as an angry dictator. I'm hoping that you've move past that. But our rejection of that isn't because somehow, now somehow we've come into a reality where we have a true heart, a sincere heart before the Father. What has happened is that we, we have exchanged one form of legalism for another. Uh, where in the Old Covenant we see very negative sins of legalism. Today we live in a time of very positive legalism. Uh, a view of God not as an angry God, but a God that is for us whose ultimate desire is to make us happy and successful in our lives. We just, we believe that, that God is like a genie, and that if I would just take small steps of faith, that God would give us what we want. God isn't mad at us. He, he's a genie, and he supplies me with a life of happiness, and he's wanting me to ask him for help. Like, just give it to me, Lord. And so we often take that view into the way that we look at the scriptures. And we look at the scriptures through the lens of practical application. Lord, teach me how to earn your blessings. And so we go to a story about somebody like David, who was loved by God. He was a man that was after the heart of God, right? After God's own heart. And he said, and we say, well, let us look at his life. And let us figure out the things that David did that blessed him in his life. And let's develop some sort of strategy around the things that David did so we can have a strategy in our life so God, too, will bless us and reward us the way that David did. 
We look at the life of somebody like Nehemiah, this great leader and overcomer. And we say, oh, what kind of leadership principles can we learn from Nehemiah that we can do these certain things so God will bless us and care for us and reward us like he did Nehemiah? And this is an issue within the modern church today, that we want to dissect the lives of the people in Scripture to develop patterns and strategies so we get what we want happiness and success this is a form of legalism called positive legalism and so look you and i if you haven't figured this out by now like you're not david and i'm not nehemiah and you're not nehemiah i'm not paul or barnabas or matthew or peter i'm i'm me those heroes are not the standard of faith for God's believers. Their stories are there not for us to dissect them and build strategies for our own lives. Their stories exist in our scriptures so we know more about who our God is, not about what he can give to us. Not at all. Both sides of legalism, positive and negative, come to God with an untrue heart. Their motive is personal. It's about ourselves. To draw to God with a true heart is simply to come to him for who he is. For who he is and nothing else because he is worthy. He is worthy of our affection. He is worthy of our love. He is worthy of our lives. We come to him in surrender with no confidence in ourselves, only in Christ because he is worthy. With a full assurance of faith, a heart that is submitted to God, trusting that he has forgiven us, trusting that he has cleansed us from all of our unrighteousness, all of our confidence is in the work of Christ. We have faith in him. Our faith in him gives us full assurance that we will experience all of the promises that God has given to his people through our confidence in Christ. And so in 1023, he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. What a great term, for he who promised is faithful. This is an encouragement for us to hang on, to not be distracted, to not be enticed by, by the world. Some of our issues in our life isn't in us believing in Christ. Like, it is very easy for us to say, I believe in Christ. Our greatest issue is loving him and his word the most. Matthew Henry writes this in his commentary. He says that faith and love must go together. It's not enough to believe the sound words and to give an assent to them, but we must love them, believe their truth, and love their goodness. It is easy to have this intellectual confession that Jesus is God and that he loves me and that he died for me, but there's no staying power in that belief, no perseverance in that confession until the words of Christ are the center of our life, the center of our affection and our love, 
that his words aren't just wonderful because they're gracious and sincere. His words are wonderful because they're good and they're true. And he is faithful to us. And those words aren't true and good just because we think they are. They're true and good because they are. And that's it. And so as he closes this scripture here, he simply reminds us of the challenge of having a confidence that's not based within our own selves. And the duty it us is for us to do this thing called faith together. We need each other. The, the journey of faith is hard. It's almost entirely paradoxical to us to have a confidence and a love to be so faithful to something other than ourselves. But the scripture says we need each other to persevere. And so let's look at 24 and 25 here. He says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The idea behind these words, considering and stirring up one another, is the idea of stimulating one another towards greater work and duties in Christ. It involves us knowing the people of faith in our proximity to the extent that we know their common temptations, we know their common patterns, we know their circumstances, we know their hardships, we know the risks that they have taken in their lives, that we had be so attentive to the lives of each and every person in the body of Christ that we would know how to stir them up towards love and good work. Not to promote, to promote them uh, towards discontent and struggle, but stir them up towards greater love and faithfulness and delight in Christ. So it is easy, is it not, for us just to come here and sit. It is easy for us just to have this as another thing that we do on a Sunday morning. It is easy for us to come to church thinking about what is in this for me. Yet there is no scripture that we will ever find that elevates the eye of the body over the we. Our flourishing, our thriving, our perseverance, our joy, and to some extent, our confidence is found in the collective and not in the individual. We are the body of Christ. And as the body, we need each other. So what sort of time do we put into knowing one another? Have we engaged in the lives of the people in this church? Do we know the sorts of things that we could do to stir them up to love and encourage them? Do we know the hardships and the circumstances in their lives? Do we even know the names of the people who sit in front of us? Do we know their story at all? Do we know what drives them, what their fears are? Do they matter to us? Can we consider another besides our own self? And so there has been much said today, and I hear this all the time, about the issues of the church. Like we are wired in almost every way to see the negative. We, we always see the church for what it isn't doing. We always see the church in this local context for what it should be doing or what we think it should be doing or how it's lacking. 
We always look at the negative. So much so that we've come to believe that gathering as the corporate body of Christ is seemingly unnecessary. That to come together as the corporate body of Christ to worship collectively the triune God of the universe is unneeded. We say we don't need the church to be a follower of Jesus. We can even see the church as a hindrance to our faith. We see it full of hypocritical people who bring us down. And it's just too much work to be in relationships with those kind of people. Isn't that revealing of our hearts? Right? Isn't that revealing of our truest motivation? Isn't it really just about my comfort, about my happiness? We've said this from time to time, this phrase that wherever you are, there you are. The truth is, is it only takes a room of one to be a room full of dysfunction. Because wherever you go, you bring all your problems, you bring all of your struggles, you bring all of your inadequacies into that room. And look, you and I have a hard time seeing those things. But self-perception always leads to self-deception. We need other people in our lives who can tell us what we don't see, who can examine the scripture in a way that we don't always look at it and say, hey, man, I love you so much that I'm going I'm to risk this to tell you, man, I see some things in your life that are concerning you. That we would be vulnerable in our lives to the point where somebody could say, man, I see what's going on in your life. Here, let me help with that. Let me carry this burden for you. Friends, there is no reality where being a Christian outside the church will ever be pleasing to God, nor will ever be beneficial for you. And what the end of this scripture reminds us of is that there is a day drawing near when your need for the church and your dependency on the church will almost be certain. You will not be able to survive as a believer outside the body of Christ. The pressure will be too unbearable. There is a day coming where the church won't be as bustling and busy as it is. It will be a a people of rest who trust with confidence in the work of Jesus who see each other as their only way to survive in a culture that has disowned them. And so we need each other. Your privilege has probably afforded you the right to think that you don't. Your money has probably provided you some security that you don't need one another. But we are broken without each other. We need each other. And so this scripture does a wonderful job of challenging our confidence and our motives. All that we are is Christ. And all that we have confidence is is in his work and his person. And because of that, we can draw near to God. That we can hold fast our confession. And we can stimulate one another in encouragement and love towards greater works. And so we are here today as every day celebrating the work in the person of Jesus. And we're going to do that by coming into a time of communion where we celebrate what Jesus has done for us and what he has said. It is because of the risen Christ that we get to join together, as we say every week, as a, as a body of broken but hopeful believers who seek to love what he loved, to live as he taught, and to be faithful 
in this our time and place. In this meal, we remember the promises of Jesus, the price that he paid for us, who he was and what he said and what he did. On the night before Jesus died, he took the loaf of bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he said, take this and eat. And whenever you do this, remember me. And after supper, he took the cup of blessing and he poured it out saying, this is the new covenant, remember me. Today, we remember Christ. We remember his life. We remember his love, his friendship, his teaching, his dying, his rising to life again. In sharing this meal together, we proclaim a shared faith together. And what our shared faith hopes in is this, that Christ has died, that Christ has risen, and that Christ will come again. Can we say that again together? That Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. The body of Christ, the bread of life represented in the cracker, the lifeblood of Christ, the cup of blessing represented in the juice. These are the gifts of God for God's people, and we are grateful for these gifts. And so if you're in here today and you have made a profession to walk with Jesus, if you have accepted him as your Savior, this is a time for the family of God to come around the table and celebrate what Christ has done for us. If you're in here and you haven't made that decision, like, look, we'd love to talk to you about that. But know that this is a time for the family of God. And parents, we remind you that you are the chief disciples of your family. It is upon your discretion when your children take part of communion. So Caleb's going to come out. He's going to play a little bit of music. I ask you to take some time to seek your heart out, explore where you need to bring forgiveness to others, where you need to hollow the name of God. And if you have wronged somebody If you have sinned against somebody, I would say go and make that right. The scripture is clear about us partaking in communion while sinning against our brother. We should restore that relationship first. And so Caleb's going to play, and when you're ready, take up the elements if you want, and then join us in worship.